Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the forthcoming novel, Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel, The Good Lieutenant. And today is a very special episode because we're live in Columbia, Missouri at the 2022 Unbound Book Festival. What did you, uh, what did you first come here? I came here with you in 2019, and we did an episode with George and Paula Saunders about the contenders for the Democratic nomination in 2020. I think I remember at the end that we did like a drawing. Do you remember? Or I remember writing these names down on paper, but I don't know what it was about. Did like we were drafting candidates? Time and we had is to a say soup, man. About them? I have no idea. No. <laughs> nobody. I do remember that nobody predicted that Joe Biden was going to win. No, the that election. was not. That was, that not, was not. He was the, not a yeah. high draft pick. No. Um, well, we promise that everything in your Twitter feed has already been covered in literature. But we cannot predict what is in your Twitter feed. Yeah. So we couldn't predict about Joe Biden. But um, even though 2019 was your introduction, this is my, I think, fourth time here. I came here in 2016 and 2017, once talking about my novel, The Good Lieutenant, and another time doing a panel with our friend and former guest on this show, editor and poet John Freeman. Man, the guy booking this festival must be a genius, or at least a fan of our show. He is, luckily, I think... I know he's a genius. I don't know if he's a fan of the show. We'll find out in a minute. He's going to be on the show, though. Uh, we would never have come here to Columbia together or met George and Paula Saunders or interviewed Sequoia Nagamatsu and Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya as we just did without his genius. And that person is the organizer and founder of the Unbound Book Festival and author Alex George. Hi, guys. Alex George is a writer, a bookseller, a director of a literary festival, and a lawyer. He was born in England but lives here in Columbia. His 2012 novel, A Good American, was a number one indie next pick, a Barnes & Noble Discover New Writers pick, an Amazon Best Book of the Month, a Midwest Connections pick, and a Library Journal Best Book of the Year. It was a national and international bestseller. His 2017 novel, Setting Free the Kites, was an Indie Next pick, a Barnes & Noble Best Fiction pick, a Library Reads Choice, and a Midwest Connection pick. It also won the Missouri Prize for Fiction in 2018. But today, we're here to talk to him about the process of founding a great book festival, reopening a great book festival after a pandemic, and his latest novel, The Paris Hours, which was published in 2020, an Indie Next pick, a Book of the Month selection, and an Amazon Best Book of the Month. Welcome to the show, Alex. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. You forgot to mention that he also like fixes the Zoom links and like does the mics <laughs> and shows everybody around this whole entire town. Um, 
We want to talk about the Paris Hours and the business of running a book festival during lockdown. But first, I want to do some background research into you. You're a writer, which brings a lot of, who, who brings a lot of other writers to Columbia. But what brought you to Columbia, and why did you decide to stay? This this thing only goes on for an hour. Right? <laughs> like, well, you're the organizer. We can make it two hours. I'm sure you can find some extra time. So I I came to Mid Missouri, and I've been here since 2003. Um, and I came because my uh, ex-wife uh, is from Mid Missouri. She's from a small town called California, Missouri, which is about. 45 minutes away in the car uh, from Columbia. It's about 45 years away in some other respects. Um, and we actually, we, we met in Paris. I promise I'll keep this short. We met in Paris when I was working as an attorney there, got married in New York, moved to London, had a kid, and then we, uh, after sort of Paris, New York, London, the next obvious step was mid-Missouri. So, <laughs> so we came back to be closer to her family, had another kid. Um, and that's why I'm here, and we're not together anymore, but you know, the kids are there, and so I wasn't going to go back to England. So I think uh, it's nice to I have am. a writer who wants to stay here. We just did a panel earlier about Tennessee Williams and Evan S. Canella, two writers <laughs> right. who wanted to leave Missouri, so we're glad you stayed. <laughs> and this festival has been my introduction to Columbia, but I'm, I, you know, I'm only here, I only get to be here for the weekend. What kind of town is Columbia to write in? I think, you know, as we noted in the intro, you've written and published a number of books while living here, and I'm curious about where you work. Are you a cafe writer, a home writer? What's your Columbia writer's routine? So, so personally, I, um, I mean, I, I do have, you know, a lot of jobs. I in that bookstore and uh, and I still practice law. I do have a lot of jobs. <laughs> it's completely <laughs> insane the number of jobs that you have. So so my personal routine is I, I wake up at five o'clock every day and I work for two hours and that's all I have. That's the only time I have. Wow. Um, but, and then I go and sort of look after the kids and then go and sort of see clients or sell books or do whatever I can and put this thing on. So um, so, so it's a very limited time but the thing about it is that when you know that you have a limited amount of time you're very, very focused. And uh, I probably wouldn't have written any books had it not been for two things, one of which is an awful lot of coffee. And the second thing, at five o'clock in the morning, you need it. And the second thing is this amazing thing on my computer uh, that allows me to turn off the internet. Is yeah. it self-control or is it freedom? Oh, it's freedom. Freedom. Because I have no self-control. So, <laughs> so I need to use freedom uh, and it's brilliant. Um, and uh, that's that's how I've got my books written. So very early in the morning, and uh, yeah. But it's, but this is an amazing town for writers. There, there are a weird number of writers who live here, and the assumption always is that oh, well, they must be connected with the university. And one or two of them are for sure, but an awful lot of them are not. Uh, they just they're just here. They kind of like me. They just sort of ended up here for some reason or another. And uh, yeah, it's it's kind of fantastic. It's a great community for that. So. Speaking of your jobs, when you got here, and this is before we're talking about the bookstore, okay, which you added that also. You've got a law practice, you've got a community, you're publishing books. What in the world made you decide, oh, I think what I know what I want to do is found a book festival in Columbia and start that project, which won't be hard. Um, or maybe you knew it would be hard, or oh. how did this come up? So, I, so first of all, I didn't know it was going to be hard. I mean, I've, I've always said that the, the biggest thing I had, the biggest asset I had uh, was, was a really profound ignorance of what was involved <laughs> with putting on a book festival. Um, so the reason that it even occurred to me was I was on tour for Good American in, in 2012, uh, and I went to the Gaithersburg Book Festival and the Louisiana Book Festival, and I sort of thought, this is cool. These are like 
all these writers are here and people are here to listen to writers. It's like very unusual. And so, and you know, Columbia is a town that loves its festivals. We have the True False Film Festival, which yeah. is like this globally recognized, incredible documentary film festival. We have a music festival, all these things. And so I thought, and, and also we have three universities in this town, lots of very smart readers. I mean, it just seemed to make sense that this, this, that this town would respond well to a book festival. And so I sort of asked some people, and they all came and sat in my living room, and there were librarians and educators and uh, a couple of booksellers and some other people. I said, what do you think? And they all said, yeah, okay. Um, so and, nobody uh, said, you are crazy. Not one person. <laughs> well, you had the right people at that yeah, meeting. Well, then. Yeah, clearly, yeah. And I think they all thought, oh, if he wants to do that, he can. So. Um, so, but you know, we we really didn't know what we were doing, um, but it's been an absolutely extraordinary journey, and it, yeah, it's had a lot of work, but it's so much fun. It's so much fun. So, what do you think makes Columbia a great town for a book festival? Because, I mean, what makes this festival tick? Well, um, I mean, lots and lots of things. Um, I mean, the audiences. A wonderful audiences. They are very smart. It's something that people often also say about True False. Um, the filmmakers who come and when there's a Q&A, they always come off the stage and going, whoa, those are very, very smart people in that audience. They, they really knew what they were talking about. And there's a very similar vibe with Unbound as well. People, you know, they're, uh, these people in particular, all incredibly smart. Yeah, these ones. Uh, yeah. Um, but, but, but really, they, 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 they ask smart questions. Um, they're very engaged, and uh, they love it. And because of that, the authors love it. Um, so I think, that, I think that really helps. And then we have just an incredible um, book-loving community with lots and lots of wonderful volunteers. How do you get all those volunteers? Like, what? how does that work? It's hard to get people to volunteer to do anything. Well, it's a lot of begging okay. uh, is, is, is involved. Do they and recruit each other? Does it work like Amway or uh, something like that? You get one person and then they go recruit two people? Well, or? they do. I mean, there is a little bit of that. Okay. They're, they're, you know, it's like, well, I'm going to do it. Why don't you do it too? And okay. so, you know, we build up this. Tom this Sawyer fence painting kind of. Okay. <laughs> well, we, and we do, the, we do this sort of. Um, this community thing, and, and it's been hard this year because we haven't had to do it for three. For this is we this is it's been a three year break, um, and so we sort of had to begin again. And so we've had some people who volunteered every year, and God bless them. But but we've had lots of new people as well this year, and we're sort of building up again. So as we you mentioned, the festival had to be canceled in 2020 due to COVID, and in 21 you did a virtual festival, and this year we're all back together. I mean. I know the answer to some of this, but because obviously we're, we're still masking in the audience. Um, but what were the thoughts, prayers, and precautions that you thought about when thinking about bringing the festival back? When was the moment when you knew, okay, we might be able to do it live? I don't remember exactly when it was. We, I mean, 2020, I mean, we all remember 2020. It was, it felt particularly hard for us because, because of the timing because you know the festival is in April and everything shut down. You were already booked for Oh, everything was booked. And okay. uh, we had a lady who spent week, I mean, almost literally weeks on the telephone trying to get refunds for all of the, because we buy very cheap plane tickets for everybody. Um, uh, there's no frills. And so we had, so she spent a long time getting the money back. Oh my God. Uh, so, so it was, it was, and it was heartbreaking. We had some unbelievable people who were gonna come. Who was coming? Garth Greenwell. Um, oh, I don't, it makes me sad just thinking about it. Now, some of the people actually are here this year because we, we they they did come back. But 
Garth is one. And, we um, just had Garth on the show. He's really good. Oh yeah, he's great. Um, yeah, I was I was heartbroken. Um, and so it was hard, but we had to pick ourselves up. And one of the things that I said pretty much right away is, the one thing I know is that we don't know anything about what's going to happen. So let's not even try and put on a live festival in 2021. So from the very start, we decided that it would be it would be online, which you know is one of those rare occasions. <laughs> I actually made a good call and got it right. Um, and so and it was a wonderful thing. Uh, and we did the opposite of what we normally do in that rather than cramming everything into one weekend, we spread it out over three months. And one of the most common complaints that we used to get at the festival was that there was too much choice and that everybody was having to make decisions between this wonderful author and that wonderful author and that fantastic poet. And why can't we see them all? And so I thought, well, this is one chance that we can actually do it. So there was we did two events a week for three months um, and it was wonderful. And um, the format was exactly the same only people were in little squares on a screen rather than rather than like this and the other benefits of course were that we were able to expand geographically uh who we could invite and of course the audience was was much wider too so people were uh not tuning in that makes me sound even older than i am but there was they, they were watching the zooms from from um you know all over the world and we had people from vietnam and people from the uk and uh, and it was it was great I have one other question about this, and I don't know. I mean, so this is a free festival mm -hmm. for, and although people are encouraged, as we mentioned before, to text in your donations who want to do that, and that would be great. Um, how do you pay for it? How do you fund? What is the process of trying to do this? Well, begging again. Okay, <laughs> I mean, you've got you've got sponsors, right? No, I we guess. do, we I mean, do. I mean, so so there there are. There, there, there are a couple of different sources of income. Uh, we have sponsors, and God bless every one of them. Uh, and we have we apply for grants, um, mainly city grants and, and occasionally a state grant. Um, but by far the biggest source of revenue is the community. Uh -huh. uh, and people are unbelievably generous. Um, you know, it's it's really humbling to have been involved with something that people seem to love uh, and they they support us you know it, it was very important to me from the very start that we were never going to charge and we've actually had people on the city arts council tell me that we should be charging for events um, and I just said no I mean that that is a hill that I will die on because it's so important to me that you know books are for everybody this festival should be for everybody you know, we don't want to have any kind of hierarchical anything. So, so that's why we do it. It's a complete pain uh, because obviously taking out that source of revenue means we have to work a lot harder to get all of the other. I mean, how much time do you spend fundraising? Because I fundraised for, uh, you know, we yeah. have an event that raises scholarship money for students and for the public library in Kansas City. And I fundraise for that. And it's incredibly time because you're sending a ton of emails, yep. you're making individual calls. Is that all you're doing, all those things, having lunch with people? Yeah, I mean, I always say that we spend 11 months of the year fundraising and then one month of the year spending all the money, <laughs> uh, which is pretty much how it works. Yeah. Yeah. That was going to be my question. So, I mean, this festival, there's some programming tomorrow. And then when do you start planning the next one? Uh, in, in all seriousness, next week. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I mean, it takes a long time, particularly with um, some of these authors. And, you know, I mean... This podcast is like scared straight for book festival <laughs> people. If you want to start a book festival, you should listen to this first. <laughs> uh, no, but it's because, because the, the people who, you know, we're, I mean, we're incredibly proud of the, the caliber of... I mean, all of our authors are wonderful, but, but particularly the keynotes that we've had. Uh, and if you want Viet Thanh Nguyen, or if you want Zadie Smith, or George Saunders, or Salman Rushdie, or Michael Andache, you got to get them early, because they get booked up super, super far in advance. And so I already have an idea about who I want to ask next year, and we'll be sort of picking up the phone uh, once we've all sort of slept for a week, and uh, and starting that process again. But it's, you know, we have seven people on our programming committee, and it's a very... Um, well, the nice word would be organic uh, process that we go through, it, which is just is chaotic, actually, is what it is. But but it but it's wonderful and it's rewarding, and we sort of ping ideas around, and then we find our way to these strange, um, hopefully strange uh, ideas sometimes. And um, you know, we always try and sort of we sort of have this what we feel like a slight unbound brand, which is just to look at things at a slightly odd angle sometimes. Uh, which we try and do where we can, and so, and that takes time to to do that. And we're we're learning as we go. Um, you know, it's um, uh, every year we think that we're learning a little bit more about what works and about what's interesting and what people respond to. And so, but it's it's fun, but it does take a long time. I have so much respect for this, and and yes, more than a little fear, um, because. Yeah, it it just it's seems a little like, bit like how we started the podcast. I was but just not, thinking that, but harder. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, I was thinking how how little I understood how much work would be involved, um, <laughs> and who would who would really do anything if they could correctly anticipate the amount of work involved. So your novel, The Paris Hours, is set. Speaking in, of which, no one would write novels if they <laughs> were able to anticipate that. Seriously. <laughs> so your novel, The Paris Hours, is set in Paris of the 1920s, and that city at the time was not a book festival exactly, but it was according to. Hemingway, a movable feast, and the novel, in a very ingenious and moving way, records the interactions between um, ordinary Parisians and artists, musicians, and writers living and working in their midst. I'm curious about what brought you to that idea. So originally, so the, the 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 genesis there is there is this origin story for this, and it involves. So I, I used to play um, soccer on Wednesday nights um, at a place in town, and it's called the Old Farts League. Um, and if you ever saw us, you'd know why. And and I, I would sort of, I remember one evening hobbling off the field, uh, dignity left on the field, um, and getting into my car and driving driving home uh, and listening to the radio. And it was NPR, and this was back in the days when the local NPR station played classical music in the evenings. Uh, and there was this wonderful piece of music, and uh, which I adored. And I, I sort of parked and then waited for the end of the, of the music to listen to find out who it was. Uh, and it was um, a piece by Maurice Ravel. And um, the NPR announcer was, was talking about it, and he talked about um, um, 
how Ravel wrote it, and um, there was, um, and he talked about uh, just what was going on at the time and um, in Paris. And I thought, well, I know Paris because I used to, I used to, I went to school there, and then I used, to, and then I worked there. Um, and I thought, well, you know, I'd like to write a story about that. And I thought I was going to write a story about. Um, so particularly Serge Diaghilev, who was this Russian impresario who commissioned these geniuses to work with him. So, so he would have Marc Chagall would paint the backdrops for his, for his, his, his ballet, and uh, Stravinsky and Ravel would compose the scores, and uh, Coco Chanel would design the, the costumes. I mean, it was, it was insane. And I thought, oh, well, there's my next story. I'm going to tell a story about Serge Diaghilev. Um, and, and his sort of coterie of geniuses who, who did all these, these incredible things at that time in Paris. Uh, anyone who's read the book will have noticed that Serge Diaghilev does not appear uh, in the book. Um, because I, so, so it sent me off down a um, wonderful rabbit hole, which you will both be familiar with, of research and just reading about the time period. And I read biographies and I read um, cultural um, histories and all of these things. And I finally decided that, actually, I wasn't going to do that. Um, and the reason, were, there are several reasons. First of all, I was worried that I simply wouldn't be able to do justice to the genius of these, these, these people. Um, uh, and also, it occurred to me that their art speaks for, themselves, for itself. I mean, if you listen to a Ravel uh, piano, uh, uh, String quartet. Uh, I mean, you don't need me to tell you <laughs> anything about it. You just listen to it, and it's extraordinary. So I decided to, but but I wanted to stay in Paris because I was having a good time doing all the research, and so I just refocused the story on, as as you said, Sugi, sort of four ordinary people. Um, but I still wanted to keep some of that sort of the the artistic uh, and creative glamour, and so these characters do appear, but very much on the periphery of the book rather than. Uh, as, as central characters. So it strikes me that there's a parallel here to what we were talking about before because, you know, the concept of physical proximity isn't crucial to the novel, that, that the people are living in and around with a place where there are these famous writers and who are sort of historical figures and that, that changes their lives in some ways. Um, but isn't the idea of a book festival put regular people in contact with a bunch of writers and like, you know, put them in physical proximity? There's something special about that, you know? Yeah. And in some ways, the stars of a book festival might be thought of to be the people who attend, just as the stars of your novel are the people who aren't the writers themselves, it's the rest of the people. You know, I'd never thought of that before. Is that fair? That, Is that a fair parallel? Yeah, no, I love that. I love that. <laughs> I think that's great. Yeah. I, well, we were thinking, you know, we were, I realized, you know, just thinking like, Okay, so this is, this is a book that is about something that Alex is interested in, right? What happens when people who come in contact with art or artists, you know, and that you're creating that here. I mean, you know, Ravel does not live here, but you, you mm. bring writers here a lot of the time, and I just, I just think that's a fantastic thing. I, um, so it's not a question, it's a statement, sorry. No, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to write it down and okay. use that next time. And the people say, well, that's a smart point. <laughs> I'll give you credit, I promise. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. 
all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. So speaking of encounters with writers, I wonder if you would read us a little bit of The Paris Hours. Sure. Which bit do you want? Um, okay, so this is on... Oh, yeah. You, you no, can tell. This is on 42 okay. from... The portraits are propped up against the wall and then through to the end of the chapter. There'll be a space break. 42. Mm-hmm. At least on okay, the copy it. that I had. Okay. Do I need to give some context? Yeah, yeah please okay. do. Okay, so th- there are four main characters in the Paris Hours. Uh, this particular one, uh, and, and they go into um, rotating chapters. Uh, in this particular chapter, we're, we're meeting Guillaume, who is a painter. Uh, I don't know he's an especially good painter, but he is a painter, uh, um, suitably impoverished. Um, but he's been given a break, uh, and the break is that um, Gertrude Stein has come to look at his paintings and is in his studio. And he also owes money to some bad people. Yes, he does. Yeah. Right. Oh, yes, I probably need to. Yes, so, so he needs money badly. Oh, and there is one, uh, there's one painting in particular that is not for sale. But you can't guess where this is going. Okay. <laughs> the portraits are propped up against the wall by the window. Guillaume leads the pair over to inspect them. His subjects are a motley crew. Whenever he can afford it, he pulls people off the streets with a promise of a franc or two for their time. A street cleaner, a grave digger, the trumpet player from the house band de Le Chat Blanc. There were two or three of Therese in various states of undress. The two Americans scrutinize each painting and then whisper to each other before moving on to the next one. Gertrude Stein is doing most of the talking. Guillaume has learnt enough English while dashing off charcoal portraits in the Place du Tertre to follow most of the conversation, but he pretends not to understand a word. Finally, Gertrude Stein turns toward him. What else do you have to show us, she asks. Guillaume feels his world tilting precariously. There's nothing here of interest to you, he croaks. She shakes her head. I'm afraid it's all quite derivative and second rate. Before Guillaume can respond, the American clomps across the studio and stands in front of the painting hanging on the wall opposite his bed. Ah, now, she murmurs. This, on the other hand. Alice, come see. Alice scuttles across the room. They look at it together. This one is all right, says Gertrude Stein. She turns to him. How much do you want for it? Of all of the paintings in the room, this is the one she wants. Guillaume closes his eyes. He thinks of Le Miroir and his thugs. <coughs> 1,200 francs, he says. The words are ashes in his mouth. Gertrude Stein considers this number, her head cocked at a thoughtful angle. I'll give you 900 for it, she says. 900 francs will not help him. 900 francs will still get him killed. Guillaume curses silently. Of course the Americans wanted to haggle. He should have asked for 2,000 and then allowed himself to be beaten down. He shakes his head. The price is 1,200, he says, hoping she won't hear the fear in his voice. Gertrude Stein looks at him with interest. After a moment, she says, well, in that case, you might as well show us what else you have. Guillaume doesn't know whether to feel despair or relief. For the next half hour, the two women pick over what remains of Guillaume's inglorious career. They are unmoved by his landscapes. 
They do not like his still lives. His brief dalliance with collage leaves them cold. They move toward the final canvas. They stand in front of it, their heads almost touching. There is a final shake of the head from Gertrude Stein, and the game is up. Guillaume makes a decision. One moment, please. Gertrude Stein turns to him. Yes, I accept your offer, he says miserably. My offer? He points to the painting on the wall. It's yours for 900. No, thank you, she says. Guillaume stares at her. Pardon? I've changed my mind, she says. I don't want it anymore. But you said you liked it. Did I? Gertrude Stein puts her fedora back on her head. Come along, Alice. Alice moves past Guillaume and into the corridor, not looking him in the eye. He watches them go, numb. Just before the door closes behind them, Gertrude Stein steps back into the room. There is a new hard glint in her eye. She points to the painting on the wall. I'll give you 600 for it, she says. Guillaume stares at her. But you just offered me 900, an offer you rejected. This is my new offer. But that's daylight robbery. She doesn't blink. Do you accept or not? 600 francs, exactly half of what he needs. He is bleeding on the floor. Gertrude Stein stands in his studio and calmly waits for him to agree to her terms. She watches him. She does not look away. Thank you so much. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. One of the many things I like about that passage is that it reminds me that artists are not perfect. And I wonder if your experience trying to herd cats or, you know, I mean, organize the writers who are attending this festival <laughs> led you to this insight because there's such interesting push and pull between the two of them, such delightful crabbiness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. And there is no crabbiness with any of the authors who come to... Uh, this no one's ever haggled with you on their on their price for oh coming? their agents do oh there you go <laughs> yeah yeah no the agents do gosh they have to earn their money somehow um, yeah no I mean it's all it, it's it's uh, it's commerce um, you know and particularly uh, you know I mean Guillaume is at the coalface of all of that and he's you know he uh, earlier on I think there's there's a um, a scene where he actually paints over some of his his canvases because he can't afford to buy new ones. So it's um that's that's how it goes. And as you mentioned before, you were sort of like I don't know how good of a painter he is. Mm. And yeah, I'm just thinking about yeah the way that the book represents like the difficulty, like the real labor and price of making art, and also then what happens when you make it and it's not what you imagined. Yeah, but what I like about Guillaume is that. He's not a great artist, I don't think, um, but he doesn't want to do anything else. Like, he is in for this. He is fully committed, and you've got to respect that. 
Uh, and uh, so I really, I liked him for that. And he did paint this one painting that appears later on in the book. Well, it's actually the painting that, Guillaume, uh, that Gertrude Stein bought, and it makes its way across Paris uh, and into the window of um, Shakespeare and Company. Um, and uh, another character sees it. Um, and whether or not it's any good, um, who knows, but it certainly spoke to this other character um, and really resonated with him. So, you know, that, that also is important because, you know, we all create things in our different ways and, you know, you never know what kind of resonances you're going to be creating in other people. You know, when I wrote this book, I kept saying to my wife, I have no idea who is going to read this book. <laughs> uh, I, and and I, I, of course, I realized that it didn't matter. <laughs> you know, you're going to write the book you're going to write uh, and then keep your fingers crossed that someone's going to want to read it. Um, uh, and I think that people who, and I see enough of them, uh, who write a book thinking, oh, I've seen uh, this trend is happening, um, and so I'm going to do that, or I'm going to copy this person. I mean, that way lies madness. I think that we all, particularly novelists like us, it takes so long to write a book. It, you've got to write what's inside you, and you've got to write the most important thing to you, because anything else uh, seems to me to be a recipe for, for disaster. So the book does have in it these, um, I mean, it's not just this painting, but there are a number of marvelous creations and heartfelt creations in the book. And some of them and some of the characters come kind of with secrets. And one of the things I've been dying to ask you, and we were talking about this a little bit before, so I'm gonna try and phrase this so carefully to avoid spoilers. There are some like, such interesting secrets in this book. And I was just curious, how you came to those, and then also from like a really nerdy craft perspective, how you decided where to put them. Um, I'm teaching a class right now at the University of Minnesota um, about plot as revision, and this is sort of one of the things we're studying, and just reading your book, I couldn't help but think about the different ways that this plot moved and, and jumped in time, and, and the different things that characters shared with each other at, at certain points. So uh, so that's it's a wonderful question, Suki, and I, I guess I should just, little bit of background so the book takes place over the course of one day um, and these four characters are presented in as I said before rotating chapters so right there I caused myself about 17 different headaches um, and just by giving myself this quite ridiculous structure to have to sort of fit everything into but a constraint can sometimes help you know like I mean that's oh, what sure. poets do is create constraints for themselves yeah yeah, yeah. No, did you, so do you create that constraint from the beginning from the very beginning okay. and uh, people would say why did you decide to do that and that's the question I cannot answer because I have no clue why I thought that was a good idea I mean there are some other books that take place over the course of one day um, some of which are much bigger than my book, um, uh, but but you know that wasn't why I wasn't doing it doing it in homage to to, to Joyce or anything. But um, I just thought, oh, that'll be interesting, um, and and it didn't. But it but it was extraordinarily, it was a complicated, technically complicated thing to do, and what I ended up doing was to write, and the chapters are also quite short, so I'd write five or six chapters in a row from one person's point of view, and then five or six from another, and then like, and then I literally shuffled them together. <laughs> okay. Because you have to, because I had to, um, in addition to having this rotation, the, the, the day had to move forward chronologically without there being a sort of glitch in the space-time continuum and suddenly you go back two hours. Um, and there was an awful lot of 
metaphorical and occasionally literal banging of my head against my desk uh, to try and make it work. And, you know, then there was a degree of shoehorning involved. But as you said, I mean, sometimes those limitations, you know, you have to get creative um, when, you, when you do something like that. I mean, Barthelmey, Donald Barthelmey said that part of doing fiction is deciding what doors you're going to close. Right. You know, and so that's part of the, you can't, you know, you have to have those constraints or you don't really have invention. I think it forces you to invention. Yeah, no, that's right. And I mean, I, I, I um, don't do it anymore, but I used to teach a class with my wife actually called Chapter One in the Honors College at MU. And we would, it was a, such a fun class. It was a 15 week course when we spent 10 weeks reading first chapters of novels that we really liked and looking at what people did. And then the last five weeks we would workshop the students' chapters. Uh, and I would talk to them about, and so my, my wife is this brilliant academic who's just uh, way smarter than I am. Uh, and I was in there for the sort of the, the creative writing stuff. Um, and so, and I was talking about, and this is really the, the, the point uh, that you were making, Whitney, about if you have a man walking up a hill, there are an infinite number of decisions that you need to make when you're telling the reader that. Do you talk about the weather? Was there a bench? Maybe there was an inscription on the bench. What's he thinking about? Is he chewing gum? Or maybe he just ate a banana. What does he see in the back? There are all of these questions, and you have to spend a lot of time slamming those doors shut yeah. uh, and, and working out which doors you're going to leave open and what's important. And that, and so, I mean, to talk about plot and revision, I mean, I cut out so much stuff of my books. And you, I, I'll, I'll write something, leave it for as long as I possibly can, and then go back to it. And two-thirds of it is completely irrelevant, and so I just, just expunge as I can. Do you have a secret cabinet of B-sides? Uh, well, I have, a, I have enormous, very large files on my computer, because I never delete anything in the idea that, I mean, it's clearly nonsense, but something that I've deleted might one day be worth, I might re-resuscitate oh, it somewhere else. You could do an stuff. anthology of these. Yeah. Like, we all have them, right? Oh, yeah, but nobody, I don't want anyone else to read them. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't even want my editor to read them. So I'm curious about like when you're rearranging all this stuff and you're banging your head against your desk, is this like a like an after hours at, at Skylark on the floor, you print out the whole book and you're moving it around, or are you a post-it guy? Are you a flowchart guy? How do you reorder I am none of those things, and it probably would have been much easier if I was at least one of those things. Uh, no, it was, look at, I realize that no one can, people listening to the podcast can't see the, the face I'm making, but it was just, you know, I would just th think really, really hard, um, and sort of just, and there was like, um, just trying to work out where things needed to go. And it was a very sort of, because I mean, I had these little chapters, so it was easy to move them around. So there was a sort of modular element to it. But the problem is <laughs> you move one and then all of the dominoes fall apart and then you have to rebuild it all again from scratch, which wasn't great. Um, and there probably was a smarter way of doing it. But no, I mean, I've, and I, 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 watch, I see people, like a lot of writers, happily people seem to do this less now. What used to drive me crazy, I'm sure you two would write, they, they would tweet or something about, well, I wrote 3,000 words today. It's like, oh, thank you so much for sharing that. But what people do do is they'll, 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 they, they post pictures of their walls with multicolored um, post-it notes on them. And it just makes me feel so um, I, dumb. Because uh, uh, it... 
I, I just, I, I've never done it. I think I, I'm, you know, such a non-visual person. It's all words. Uh, and so even having color-coded, it's, it's no, no use to me at all. But Alex, that's amazing because, I mean, when he says a lot of short chapters, there's like 40. Yeah. So you just kept them in your head. Well, I tried, wow. yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I'm floored. That's amazing. Um, I would love to have the ability to hold the entire structure of a novel a, a novel that I was working on in my head. Um, I don't know that I'm a posted person, but... But um, I think that's where the unconscious comes in. I mean, you do have it in your head, but and I don't think your conscious mind can process all of it at the, all the time, right? But if you get breaks, if you're only writing for two hours at five in the morning, you've got all day your unconscious mind has time to process mm-hmm, and think mm-hmm. about where, what you've done and how it affects those other pages. And then in the morning, you kind of can see better, or at least that's how it works for me. Yeah, and the th- what, what, what works really well for me um, is if, and this doesn't always work for various reasons, but if I can get into the shower at seven o'clock, um, immediately after I finish writing, there's something about showers, I don't know, uh, that just, and very often what I've done that morning will realign itself a little bit and make a little bit more sense, <laughs> which often involves, therefore, my getting out of the shower quite quickly, possibly too quickly, uh, and writing down, like, you just, it's, it's funny how things crystallize after the event, um, and there's maybe something to do with running water, I don't know, but, uh, but yeah, so I, of, I often do that. So we're going to open things up for uh, questions from the audience, we had, but we have just a couple more questions for you. That are quickies. Uh, Gertrude Stein is a president of the novel. So is Proust, Ravel, as you mentioned, uh, Josephine Baker. So who was your favorite celebrity artist to write about and research? Well, uh, Proust. Yeah. I mean, he's just, he, you know, uh, he was so much fun. I mean, I, I have to confess that I have read more biographies of Proust than I have actual Proust. Um, uh, I, I did get through um, uh, Swan's Way, but <laughs> and I will try and do some more. But uh, and no one, t- no one says how funny Proust is. By the way, it's uh, he's uh, he's he's wonderfully funny. Um, but he was just a lot of fun, and it was, um, you know, I, I enjoy writing about artists. I mean, there there are there are painters, there are musicians, there are dancers, and there are, there are writers and. It was just fun to, to, to take him on in a way, in, in, in a way that I hope was suitably, suitably reverential and uh, respectful. Um, so yeah, I, he, was, he was the one I liked the best. I think he was probably my favorite to read about. Um, so bef- last question before we open things up for the audience. Which is more enjoyable, writing a novel or planning a book festival? <laughs> or, which or, or, which more, or which is more painful? <laughs> Yeah, ask me on Monday. <laughs> um, I mean, they're so different. They're so different. Like you, you, I know you're going to make me answer this question, but I'm just going to hedge as much as I can before I do. Um, I mean, they're, they're, you know, as you know, writing a book is an intensely personal thing. It's there, you and your quill or your computer or whatever, and that's all there is. And uh, it's wonderful, and you get to construct the world in which you inhabit. <laughs> I remember, I remember a couple of times when I was—I um, I don't do this anymore—but I used to um, would go onto Facebook at five o'clock uh, before I turned it off, and I would say, "Right, I'm going off to Paris," uh, and then would that would be the post, and then I would 
to open it up again at seven o'clock and everyone going, oh, you lucky thing, when are you coming back? And I was going, no, no, just in my head. I'm just going in my head. But writing allows you to do that. It allows you to travel. It allows you to make up wonderful, hopefully wonderful stories um, and just to explore whatever is obsessing you. Uh, but it's a very, very private thing. Not so much with a book festival because, you know, I, I, I talk all day and I talked last night about the community and how important it is to, to you, this thing does not and cannot exist in a vacuum. Um, and I have learned many new skills uh, uh, doing this, uh, one of which is, to, is talking to people um, because I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm a, a, a classic um, stereotypical introvert. Um, I don't know if any of you have read Susan Cain's book, Quiet. It's a wonderful book, and like, I have never felt more seen in my whole life. Um, so, but you know, I, I believe in Unbound passionately, and you know, it's pushed me outside of my comfort zone in many ways, uh, and that was one of them. And, and I, as I said in my remarks last night, you know, I feel so incredibly lucky to be involved because of the friends that I have made and and the connections that I have made. This this community has been extraordinarily welcoming to me since I arrived here 18 years ago. And um, it's just been wonderful to be able to give something back and to really feel a part of it. So I really didn't answer the question at all, did I? <laughs> um, uh, but if I had to do one, then I, I would write books. All right. Does anybody have any questions for Alex? Yes. I'm going to repeat the question as Alex himself has instructed me to do. Um, the questioner is asking, uh, once you became a lawyer, did that lead you into writing, and how do you continue being a lawyer and a writer at the same time? Is that correct? Okay. Well, um, so they're very different um, in many ways, but of course they both involve using words. Uh, so the kind of lawyer that I am is the incredibly boring kind of lawyer. I don't go to court. I don't slam my fist down or take depositions or do anything remotely interesting. I do, I do corporate work and, uh, and, and estate planning, uh, which is about as boring as it gets, but it allows me the time to do the other things that I like to do. Um, what's interesting is that both being a writer and being a lawyer involve words, but in completely different ways. So when I'm drafting a revocable trust, I already went into too much detail, but when I'm drafting any kind of legal document, my, I have one job, which is, apart from getting the law right, which is to make sure that there is absolutely zero possibility of misunderstanding. All ambiguity has to be stricken um, and writing a novel is kind of the reverse of that so you want to cast a spell and then set it off in the reader's head and they're going to be creating their own worlds from it so does one inform the other well yeah, I mean I guess so because when you get very good at sort of this and listen I mean I, I say to clients and they think I'm joking, but I, I say, I give them these this great big sort of block of, of draft estate planning documents. I say, here you go, this is an excellent cure for insomnia. Uh, but really, it's a, and, and it will never win any prizes for style, but 
there's no ambiguity in it. Um, and learning to do one allows you, I think, to be able to do the other one better because you can sort of see. Um, so, uh, and as to why I keep doing it, well, you know, I have two children and we all like to eat. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, it's just, it's, uh, it, it keeps the lights on. <laughs> yes. Looking back through your entire body of work, is there a character that spoke to you the loudest or you were thinking about the most? Who was your biggest presence? So when you say my entire body of work... Well, I was going to say, you, what you're really asking me is about the three novels that were published here and not the four novels that nobody in America touched with a barge pole, um, <laughs> but that were published in the UK. Um, that, that's, no one's ever quite framed the question in that way. It tends to be on a specific book-by-book -book basis, and very often, particularly with the Paris Hours, a lot of people say, so which of the four main characters was your favorite, which, is, which I... It's, it, I mean, all authors hate that question, because like... <laughs> Um, but um, Ooh, glad we didn't ask that question. It's yeah. good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a bit like being asked, which is your favorite child? Um, but that that being said, um, in the second book that was published in the U.S., uh, Setting Free the Kites, th there, there were two main characters in that book. They were both young, fifteen-year-old boys, uh, and one of them was named Nathan Tilly. And although I am absolutely nothing like Nathan Tilly, he's like everything that I am not. There was something about him that even, I don't know how long it's been since, I mean, it was published in 2017, so it's been a long time, but there's something, his presence after he sort of arrived continues to live on somewhere up here. Uh, and um, I'm, I'm incredibly, f I mean, I, I, I really am very fond of all, pretty much all of my characters, but, but Nathan in particular was one who um, uh, I still occasionally hear in my head. Thank you. I think we have time for one more question, if anybody has one. Yes. Um, so this is more of a nuts and bolts question about um, being a writer. You talked about, you know, kind of writer, you go into your closet, you write the story, you don't look at the trends and all that, which is obviously bullshit for the trends. So, but if <coughs> you finish, then you've got to go, right, then it goes out into the public, or do you do beta readers, you know, The questioner has said that following trends is bullshit and <laughs> then has gone on to ask, do you use beta readers and what do you do with your book after it's done in order to sort of prepare it for the public? So there are lots of different sort of questions there um, and they're not necessarily related, at least not for me anyway. Um, I don't, I mean, I have uh, my wife, who I mentioned before is completely brilliant, uh, is, and she's written two books herself. She's three, oh, oh gosh. She's written to and edited to, so there. Anyway, she she is uh, a wonderfully generous and unbelievably smart reader, and she is my first reader. And what I always say to people is that you can only read something for the first time once. 
So she is an unbelievably precious resource. And it's all I can do not to go here and, just, and, and give her things. Um, the book that I'm writing at the moment, she has not read a word of. Uh, I did a reading on Thursday night um, and I read a very short extract and there was, that was the first time that she had heard any of the, it was the first time anybody had heard any of the book. Um, so, we, we, so we work very hard, both of us, to sort of preserve that because, because it's such an important thing. Um, I like to imagine that I take uh, editorial notes very well. You would have to talk to my editors to see whether they agreed with me. Um, but I, I, I mean, I, I think I do. Um, but I've, I've been blessed by some absolutely phenomenally talented editors. And they all say, um, Alex, it's your name on the book. So at the end of the day, it's your decision. But <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. Uh, and I, I was, um, I, so the, what, one of the editors who I've worked with, yeah, it's very interesting, you learn the language of sort of New York publishing, and so she would say, in th that thing, I didn't love that, which means I hated that. So you learn to sort of pass all of these things and interpret it. Um, so that's sort of that part of it, um, and, and I, I'm immensely self-critical as well, so I'm also my own sort of best or worst editor as well, depending upon how you look at it. As far as the question about um, comparable titles, um, I mean, I steer well clear of that, um, if I possibly can. I mean, I'm very lucky to have a wonderful agent who, um, who God bless him, uh, sells these books. Uh, and then it's really up to the, um, to the publishers to work out how they're going to sell the book to, um, uh, to, to whoever's going to buy it. So, and so there, there, and there, I mean, there, there is a lot of that. And uh, I probably on this one, I can't remember what they even came up with. But yeah, I mean, it's inevitable that you have to draw those sorts of comparisons just to give people an avenue in so they know what they're looking at. Um, but if I can, I try and steer well clear of it because uh, I, I mean, I think that most authors probably have <laughs> occasionally. <laughs> I mean, the danger is that you sort of, uh, you're gonna pitch yourself a little high. You know, you might go, oh, well this is, you know, um, and, and have, a, have a comparison that you'll, be very embarrassed about 10 years time. So let someone else do it for you is always my advice. Well, um, Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks to our terrific audience and thanks so much to the Unbound Book Festival, which again, Alex is you. And um, <laughs> we so appreciate being here and we just want to remind um, folks in our audience to pick up the Paris Hours, which is just a terrific read. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And come back again next year. For sure. <laughs> and interview, interview somebody else for a change. I'm going to start doing the question rephrasing thing around my house. So when my son asks my wife a question, I'm going to say, the questioner has said <laughs> that he does not want to eat the food that you have given him. <laughs> Love it. Thank you, guys. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub. This show is produced by Anne Knigendorf. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, 
and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these places, you'll find links to our LitHub Radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned in this episode. You can also find video versions of our episodes on our YouTube channel. Our website, with our full video and audio archive and episodes grouped by theme for educators, is at fnfpodcast.net. I'm nearing the end of the semester, and many of you, I suspect, are too, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about a class that I taught this semester, which was about plot as revision, and I wanted to throw in a plug for um, my friend and former FNF guest, Peter Davies' book, The Art of Revision. I used it this term in class, and my students loved it, and I loved it, and it's just a terrific, terrific text, which um, you should check out and consider teaching if you uh, ever teach a class on revision. It's just an amazing book. And it's out from Grey Wolf. Um, It's called The Art of Revision by Peter Ho Davies. All right, good luck with the end of your semester. Until next time, this has been the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub.